ready? You ready? Quite excited, engaged, on the edge of your seat with anticipation. You gotta make up for the ones that aren't here with your excitement level. So if you just sit there and just, then I'm gonna fall asleep. Because I didn't get good sleep last night and uh, had a headache and everything, so I need the energy. McLean, I need the energy. Alright? I'm gonna feed off your energy. There we go. That's what we want to hear. That table gets it. <clears throat> no, seriously, I did. I had a splitting like migraine headache this morning for like three hours. And oh. Couldn't get to sleep. Took a Tylenol, and then that gave me crazy dreams. And so I drug in here like kind of loopy. <clears throat> so if this doesn't flow well, I'm blaming uh, heavy medication. Uh, so welcome. If it's your first time here, especially, we're glad you're here. For your first time watching, my reason the phone right there is because it's recording on. Uh, if you miss each week or any week, you can hop on to my website, jmsmith.org, click on the video or the audio archive links uh, on the podcast link. You can catch the weeks that you missed. And the goal eventually would be to have a full 30 minute segments that walk through all of the books that we studied. So we've got the full one for Exodus up on the website, and we are charging through Leviticus. We're going to be done with this probably by the end of the summer, early fall, and then we'll move on into Numbers, which is one of my favorite books to teach. But we're in Leviticus. We're in the Holiness Code. Last week, we started the Holiness Code section of Leviticus chapter 18, and uh, technically it starts in 17, and, but 18, 19, and 20 are kind of one uh, chiastic unit, if you want a fancy biblical scholarship term. They form a chiasm, where it's like bookends. It starts with... A subject and then there's something in the middle that's kind of the centerpiece and then it ends by addressing the subject that it started with and so these sections the section that we're in is all about Israel being not just separated from the nations into which God is sending them but also being separated to holiness and that's a big distinction a lot of times people think when they think about holiness and we're in the holiness code and the phrase be holy and, and holiness, the concept of holiness is everywhere in this section. So a lot of times people think of holiness, especially if you're raised in the Bible Belt, you think of what you can't do. Holiness, I'm holy, I don't see R-rated movies, I don't listen to secular music, I don't dance on the weekends, I don't cut my grass on Sunday, I don't play cards, I don't smoke, I don't drink. That's what people think holiness is. Now don't get me wrong, there is an aspect of holiness that calls you to refrain from things. <laughs> that are unholy. And that's what all last week's chapter was on. talked about there are practices, and in particularly in the realms of worship and sex, in the realms of worship and sex, there are things, many things, that are unholy and that God's people are called to refrain from. But that's not the end-all, be-all of holiness. It's not even the core of holiness. The core of holiness is going to be what you are called to as well as what you are called out from. And so this chapter, chapter 19, this is of the whole book of Leviticus. If chapter uh, 16 was the center of the book, structurally, with the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, the ceremony we studied, if you missed it, go back and catch the video or the podcast. But if that's the center of the book from a tabernacle perspective, chapter 20, excuse me, chapter 19 is the center of the book from an ethical perspective. In fact, chapter 19 of Leviticus is the summit, the, the, the twin peaks of Leviticus. Chapter 16, Day of Atonement. Chapter 19, Heart of the Holiness Code. 
this is the center. These are like, uh, I just this weekend, I had a friend in town, we went and hiked Crowder's, uh, Crowder's Mountain. And Crowder's Mountain has kind of two peaks. You go up to one and there's some cool rocky formations and you can look out and see the landscape. And then you dip down for a second and then you come to the other one with the weather station on top and the bigger rocks. And so you can kind of see, so it's like this double peaked mountain. Well, that's a good illustration of this section of Leviticus. Chapter 16, the, the day of Yom Kippur was like that first peak. And that's the first part of the mountaintop of the book. Now we come to chapter 19, which is the slightly higher peak in terms of what it's calling people to. Chapter 19 is the summary of all that God gave Israel in the covenant in Exodus. Chapter 19 is the recap of the Ten Commandments, basically. Chapter 19 is the how do, what do you, okay, we gave you, God gave Moses the Ten Commandments at Sinai, the Decalogue, the Ten Words in Hebrew. He gave him the Ten Commandments. You shall not, you shall not, you shall, you shall, you shall not. And they were sort of overriding. And everything hangs and flows from those. So, chapter 19 of Leviticus, then, is, what does that look like, Israel, when you get into Canaan? When you have left Egypt, which you've already left, you, you're camped at Mount Sinai, you're receiving the covenant, you're being prepared for your entry into the promised land that God promised 400 years before that he would give to your ancestor Abraham and his descendants, so now, you're on the cusp of entering into that. What do these Ten Commandment things look like in practical terms? What does holiness look like in practical terms? What does it mean to be God's covenant people in ethical, everyday life? He spent the first 16 chapters of the book explaining what it's going to look like in their worship life, in their sacrificial life, in their rituals, in their how they relate vertically. Now, we're getting into how they relate horizontally. So this is the centerpiece of Leviticus in terms of ethical perspective. And guess what? Leviticus is the center of the Torah, the middle book of the Torah. So we're at the middle of the middle. It's no wonder that when Jesus was asked, hey, what's the greatest commandment? He cited two. One from Exodus and one from this chapter of Leviticus. This is crucial for understanding Israel's identity. And by extension, understanding Israel's identity is crucial for understanding New Covenant Israel's identity, which is everyone who is worshiping Israel's Messiah, Jesus, Jew, Gentile, together. So we in here have the beginnings of what would be the covenant people of God under the Sinai Covenant, that would then be filtered through the events of Jesus' life and, and that what this uh, covenant life was meant to shadow or to typify or to set the stage for would then be fully expounded in the new covenant, what it looks like in the settings where we, like Israel, are people, peculiar people, in a, a surrounded by a different culture. So God's uh, directions to Israel here are very paradigmatic of how uh, his people are to be aliens and exiles in the world, so to speak. And that's exactly what Peter calls followers of Jesus in the new covenant. So we were coming to uh, chapter 19, and we know it's important because of how it starts. There's a heading in my NIV. I'm reading from the NIV. I'm not married to the NIV. It's an okay translation. I use it because most people use it. Uh, if everybody else has a different translation, I'd probably teach from that one and 
explain it. But in the NIV here, they get some things really, really right, and some things maybe not so helpful, and we've looked at some of those over the course of this study. But in this one, sometimes the Bible puts subheadings between paragraphs or kind of breaks it up, you know, and tells you, okay, this is what this section's about. Now, always keep in mind that those are added by whoever edited the particular study Bible or trans not translation, but whoever added the, uh, the particular version you're reading. So they aren't inspired. And in this case, it's very uninspired because in my NIV, right before chapter 19, it just says various laws. That's a terrible description of the heart of the Torah. These aren't just various laws. I mean, they are technically. It's not like it's lying. But it's extremely understated. These are not just various laws, random laws. It's the kind of thing that bogs people down when they start reading Leviticus and they get bored. Oh, we're going to come to some various laws. I don't see how these are related. I don't see what's going on. Turn the page. Let's get back to the story. These aren't various laws. This is heart of Torah. This is the all of the rabbis, the, the ancient Jewish rabbis. They saw this chapter and they said all of the Ten Commandments are, are encapsulated in these laws and expounded in some way, shape, or form. So these laws cut across all strata of Israel's society. They cut across everything from economics to ethics to family relationships to sexual behavior to um, sacrificial behavior, all of it. It's, it's all here. This is sort of like prototypical how Israel should be. This is the highest calling. That, this is like God saying, hey, Israel, here's what I want you to look like overall. Now, of course, at no point in Israel's history will they ever reflect this. I mean, immediately, as soon as they get into the land, they start compromising. Just like immediately. <laughs> so there's no period in Israel's history where they actually reflected this fully. But this was always the calling to which God was holding them. And this was the, uh, the, the, the goal of covenant, to produce a people like this. So God starts off then... Chapter 19, verse 1, the Lord said to Moses, Speak to the entire assembly of Israel and say to them. Now, in previous sections it said, if you've been following the study, it would start with things like, Speak to the Israelites and say to them. Or, Speak to the Levites and say to them. Or, Speak to the sons of Aaron and say to them. So God kind of addressed sometimes the people, sometimes the priests, sometimes the, the Levites. This is for everybody. Right in there is an immediate hint that this is an important chapter. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the entire assembly of Israel and say to them, be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. I, Yahweh, your God, I am holy. So I am holy. You're my image bearers. You are my icon in this world. Literally, that's the Greek word icon. It's the, it's the word used for image or, or idol or, or representation. <laughs> Israel is to be in the world what God is in terms of ethics. It was the original mandate given to Adam to rule over, to have dominion, to work and to take care of the creation. And to, he was created in the image of God. So Israel is to be holy. Why? Because it will give them a good life? No, although it will. Because it will keep them secure in the land? No, but it will. Because it will assure them blessings and they'll get their millions and their mansion and all the help and the wealth that the preachers promise on TV? No, but it might. Instead, Israel is to be holy because God's holy. Now, this is a vast departure 
from all of the other gods of the ancient Near East and all of the other religions of the ancient Near East. Egyptian pantheon, Egyptian worship did not base its ethics on the character of Ra or Ptah or Set or Horus or Osiris. The Middle East, the Canaanites did not base their ethics on the moral nature and character of Baal or Asherah or Moloch. The other people, the other cultures around at the time in the second millennium BC in the Holy Land did not derive their ethics from the character of their gods. In fact, if you've ever read Greek mythology, Norse mythology, Roman mythology, uh, Egyptian mythology, you know the gods are some pretty sordid and dirty characters. They do, they're basically people writ large in the heavens that don't have the limitations that we have. So they can do all kinds of things, ethical and unethical. But in Israel, this is the, the, this is the basis of Israel's differentiation from the surrounding cultures. You will reflect my nature. You will be holy because I, the Lord, your God, am holy. Now I'm beating this dead horse because it needs to be beaten some more. It's not quite dead. The Christians aren't quite getting it in the church at large. Peter, when he wrote to Gentile Christians scattered throughout the Roman Empire, this is the verse he cited for how they should act. He said, be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. He cited, Peter quoted, Peter cross-referenced, Peter hyperlinked Leviticus chapter 19 when addressing Christians in the New Covenant scattered throughout the Roman Empire. In Peter's mind, the ethics and the core of who they were to be, Christian Gentiles throughout the Roman Empire, was, was already given foundationally in God's covenant with Israel. Now, did that mean the Gentiles had to become Israelites? No. Other people still teach that today. Did that mean that they had to keep all the rules and the laws of Torah completely? No. Even though people still teach that today. What it meant was the core of Torah has not changed with the new covenant. The core foundation of Torah, the moral foundation upon which Torah rests, hasn't changed. Jesus did not come to give people a new ethic. Jesus came to call them back to the ethic that they had always been called to, but which they could never keep. In order to point them towards the deeper foundation of that ethic, which is the nature and the character of God himself. And then Jesus' mission, that was his teaching mission, then his actual ontological, foundational, like, like, complete and total mission was to then be for the people what they couldn't be and then to give the people what God had promised in the old covenant which was the spirit of God dwelling within them in order to change their hearts to move them to follow his decrees and to keep his commandments that undergird all of scripture so Torah is ethic is foundational. Leviticus 19's ethic is foundational. It's high. Uh, it's a high calling. It's it's to be. It's it's to what Israel was to strive for. But what we find in the new covenant and with the arrival of Israel's Messiah was because of Israel's rebellion. Because Israel was part of the problem that God wanted to solve, which was sin. Israel was equally infected by that sin. Israel could not do fully what Torah taught them to do. 
and Paul wrestles with this and he explains this from the perspective of someone wrestling with the law apart from Christ, not knowing the Holy Spirit, not being filled with that transformative power in Romans chapter 7. And then he cries out at the end of Romans 7, who will rescue me from this body of death? Who will rescue me from this corpse that I live in as a Pharisee of Pharisees trying to keep the law, trying to be for the world what God had always called us to be? Who will rescue me because I can't do it? I do the things I don't want to do, the things I don't want to do, I do... I'm a mess. And then he cries out at the end of the chapter, who will rescue me? And then chapter 8 begins with, thanks be to God in Christ Jesus. And that the law of the spirit of life has set us free from the law of sin and death. And he goes on then in chapter 8 to show what it looks like under the new covenant when someone has had this calling implanted in them through the Holy Spirit dwelling within their hearts and doing what the old covenant could never do which is transforming the person from within the old covenant could lead from without the new covenant transforms from within and that's the seal of the covenant that's the evidence of the spirit's work that's the foundation of everything so I haven't even gotten through two verses yet we're almost out of time, but that's okay because we're going to spend two weeks on this. It's worth it. Um, <clears throat> we are to be holy because God is holy. And the reason for that is because God created us to be his image bearers in this world. We are to be as he is in this world. This is all stuff people think started in the New Testament. Didn't. Jesus didn't make up the two greatest commandments. Jesus never once spoke a word against Torah, against the calling of the, or the foundational who God desired his people to be. He called Israel back to Torah like every single prophet in the Old Testament before him. Because only by going back to the heart of Torah could they then see that they need a new heart, a transformation, a heart transplant in order to keep Torah as it was intended in its fullness, not in its limited Sinai Covenant temporary format. So, God's going to go on to say, this is what it looks like. Be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. What does holiness look like for you as an Israel in the second millennium entering into the land of Canaan? Well, I'm glad you asked. It looks like this. Three, each of you must respect his mother and father. Notice the change in word order, by the way. Ten Commandments was honor your father and mother. And in this one it's flipped around. Respect or honor your mother and father. So between the two of those, what we see is that those roles are not hierarchical. They're not like, father's here, gets all the respect, and then mom, and then other stuff. No, 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 no. They're switched around because they're interchangeable in terms of respect and honor. So you will respect or you will honor your mother and father. You must observe my Sabbaths. I am the Lord your God. Family worship. Right there at the heart of this, right at the beginning. Verse 3, uh, excuse me, verse 4. Do not turn to idols or make gods of cast metal for yourselves. I am the Lord your God. This is again harkening back to the Ten Commandments. No idols. No idols. What were idols? We talked about this in Exodus and we talked about a little, little bit in Leviticus. What were idols? Well, idols were something that you could craft, create, and manipulate that would represent what you thought. The God you served looked like or, or, or was reflected his nature. Idols were a way for you to have control 
over how God treated you, the gods. Idols were a way for you to hedge your bets. If you had an idol, as long as you pay your respects to the idol, that is your act of showing obedience to the God, and then your ethical daily life, it matters, but not as much. As long as you've given your sacrifice, as long as you've said your prayer, you see this a lot, I go to India every year, I'll go back in November, and work with, with Indian Christians, of which there are many. And one of the things that they deal with, my, my fellow pastors in India, they live in a culture uh, that is steeped in idolatry. There, there is no more, uh, and this is not, I'm not saying this negative, I'm saying this as a technical truth. There is no more idolatrous culture than, than Hinduism. I mean, Hinduism, there are 330 million gods in the Hindu pantheon all over the land of India. You go there, you will not walk 20 feet in a city without walking past an idol. Some of them are in giant temples that took hundreds of years to build and, and thousands of man hours of labor. And some of them are literally no bigger than this dish. And there's a tiny little idol inside and it's on the side of the road somewhere. And as you pass by, if you want to show your respect, you put a little pinch of incense or pour it out of the honey or sugar or whatever gift, some money usually, everywhere. And, it, and that's a way of, of, of staying within the favor of the gods and showing your allegiance and showing your good citizenship and showing your belonging to the community. That's exactly how it was in the ancient Near East. I mean, the form looked a little different. The worship practices were a little bit different, but the concept was the same. It's idolatry. And again, I'm not using that pejoratively. I'm using it in its technical sense. That is what idolatry is. This little housing or this big housing, whatever it is, Within it, there is a thing, a statue, a carving, a, 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 you know, a souvenir or something, a relic. And within that, as long as I venerate that thing, as long as I show respect to that thing, as long as I give something to that thing, then I'm showing respect to the God that is, that is in some way connected and represented by that thing. And that's what keeps me and my family safe. That's what keeps our crops growing. That's what keeps our wounds bringing forth children or our cattle bringing forth offspring. That's what keeps me in good standing with the gods. In Israel, again, God's saying from you no, that's not how it works. That is what man-made religion looks like. What God is telling his people is true religion. Religion is not a bad word. God likes it. He's okay with it be religious. That's a good thing, as long as you're not falsely religious. What God says true religion is, no, true religion is, is starts at the top and goes down. True religion, then, is not so much how you relate to me and your practices, or how you manipulate me and your dealings or your giving. True religion is honoring me in the way you treat other people. You worship God most fully in how you treat the people around you who aren't following God. You worship God in things, not just in how loud you sing at church, not just in how much money you're given the offering plate, not just, but in how you treat the person that serves your food. How you treat the person at work who's your middle management and who's just a jerk and they're annoying and you hate them in the strongest sense of the word that you can get away with and still be a Christian, but you still have to work under them. How do you treat them? Or the people under you who are beyond incompetent and you wish that you could fire and you're thinking of firing, uh, how do you treat them? 
That's where worship of God comes in. The vertical is shown to be genuine or false by the horizontal. So I know a lot of people, and you all probably know a lot of people, that they are super spiritual. They will post Bible verses on Instagram all day long. But then you watch how they treat other people. Or you watch how they treat themselves. You watch their priorities in their life. They're all about giving. They're all about being generous. They're all about um, making sure their good deeds are known because of the acclaim that it brings to them and the status that it boosts in society. That's exactly what Jesus warned against because it cuts through the heart of Torah. It, it, it negates the whole purpose in the first place. And so there's, I mean, each of these commands could be a whole week-long series in and of themselves, but there's literally so much in this chapter. Of all the chapters in Leviticus to meditate on, to, to, to really read over daily, this would be the one that I'd start with. Because it really does form and shape the kind of people God wants us to be. He goes on, and we'll look at some of these next week. There's about 42 uh, commands in this section. They cut across all. There, and there's, there's positives. You shall do this, do this, do this. And then there's negatives. Don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. And like we said, they reflect all of uh, Israel's life and all their day-to-day -day, uh, comings and goings. But the, uh, the heart of it, the middle, sort of the center of this is verse 17. <clears throat> and it's the one, um, yeah, it's, it's kind of around, remember verses aren't original. Verses were made after the printing press. So this is just a way for us to kind of be on the same page. But that section around there is sort of the, the, the centerpiece of this. Um, verse 15, in fact, you can start. Do not pervert justice. Do not show partiality to the poor or favoritism to the great, but judge your neighbor fairly. Um, again, there's a whole sermon on that. Verse 16, do not go about spreading slander among your people. Slander is one of the most destructive things that you can do in a society where people relate to each other. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Absolute garbage. Words actually can hurt you way more than sticks or stones. Because they don't heal. The wounds that words cause don't automatically heal with penicillin or neosporin or band-aids or any of that stuff. Do not do anything that endangers your neighbor's life. Why? Because I am Anything you do that endangers your neighbor's life is an affront, is an attack on the very image of God. And then we'll end with uh, verse 17. Do not hate your brother in your heart. You can frankly, so that you won't share in his guilt, but do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against one of your people. Rather, love your neighbor as yourself. Why? I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. So again, when Jesus was asked, what was the greatest commandment? Citing from Exodus, it's the first one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. I mean, from Deuteronomy. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. We know it is the Shema. And then he said, and the other one is just like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. On these two hang all the law and the prophets. In other words, every word in this much of your Bible 
can all be distilled down to, or rather, all suspended from. Jesus used the image of hanging. Hanging from. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Everything else is an uh, expansion and an illustration of what that looks like when you do it in practical terms. If you don't do it in practical terms, if you don't love your neighbor as yourself, that is the proof that you do not love the Lord. So, we're out of time. Uh, have a great week. We're going to come back next week. We're going to get into some more of these laws. We're going to see how they shape the society of Israel. Uh, this summer, things kind of slow down in the summer, so if some of you are looking for some material or some things to do, like at your church, let's say you like coming here on Tuesdays, but you want to do something as a small group, as a Sunday school class, or as an individual study, um, I've got a couple of resources of, of study sessions, one on how do we read and interpret the Bible, I hold like 14 sessions on that, uh, and this is all DVD based. What about the Bible and science, Genesis 1, dinosaurs, creation, evolution, how does that all work? Uh, and then the last one is the one that everybody had so many questions about. What's up with the book of Revelation? This book scares me. I don't like to read it. I don't like to study it. It's too weird. Or the people that are super fascinated by it, and they'll tell you every headline, which world leader is which beast, and who's what credit card chips is the mark of the beast, and all this stuff. Uh, this is a DVD that walks through the entire book chapter by chapter, and it says, first, what did it mean to them? And that's how then we can see what it means to us. So I've got these for sale. This is kind of how I help do what I do. Stay with my sale of resources, fund the ministry. Um, so if you enjoy the food, if you enjoy the study, if you enjoy the video and the podcast, then uh, grab a resource and keep it going. Otherwise, have a great week, everyone. If you want some seconds, they're still available.